This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 5th, 2023. I'm Scott Delenderboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, sparks are flying in the BC legislature as the BC Conservatives have taken their rightful place as the fourth party in the legislature. Hey, if they get one more defection, I think they become the third party. At this point, I would not rule that out. Uh, federally, the parliament has a new speaker and the CRTC is going to regulate podcasts, which won't matter to us because we don't make $10 million in revenue, but you know, little podcasters can dream. Help us make $10 million a year at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's start here in BC. As I mentioned, the legislature is back. We'll get to the fun of question period in a second, but first... We have a handful of new laws on the floor. We're not going to round them all up. The big one, though, that I think attack, attract the most attention is the amend or the new law to prohibit drug use in, as Katie DeRosa describes it in the Vancouver Sun, almost all public spaces. Uh, this is delivering on promises David Eby said to revise the pilot project here in BC to go beyond just the uh, restrictions that have been rolled back from Health Canada saying you can't use hard drugs in parks and playgrounds and near schools. Uh, now they have put that into provincial statute. So if you use drugs in these places, you could face a Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and a BC provincial offense, I guess. they've It's doubly illegal now. What's notable about this law is that in addition to banning drug use within 15 meters of playground splash pools, par- skate parks, sport fields, beaches, and parks, it also prohibits it within six meters of the doorway of businesses, residents, recreation centers, or any public space, which is most cities, most space within most cities. Well, at least uh, within like the commercial uh, districts within cities on that. And- yeah, so it's been highlighted that like the downtown east side and the main uh, areas of downtown Victoria and Kelowna will pretty much be off-limits zones. Yeah, well, this is a pilot project, and uh, that's kind of the whole point of these things is to figure out what works, what ne- adjustments need to be made. And uh, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago when they made, first made the announcement they were going to do this, and this is probably the sort of thing you actually need to do to... Uh, maintain public support and address the concerns people have around this and you know the six meters from the entranceway to businesses that uh probably came from concerns uh various business owners had around uh related to their businesses and it's it probably a uh, a sign for the bc ndp's enduring popularity and success that they're responsive to such things rather than just kind of plowing ahead. I mean, this totally undermines the pilot project, though. The point was to reduce stigma and to reduce police interactions. This has now given the police the ability that the way the process in the bill works is if you are caught using controlled and illegal substances in these zones, you the police can ask you to stop and or leave. And if you don't do that, they can seize your drugs and arrest you, in which case we have now given police back the ability to harass and, you know, punish drug users, which we the province's well, argument different. is they're trying to push them towards uh, uh, substance use spaces, uh, which don't exist in a lot of places. So, Well, it's different than it was before because the decriminalization period is not a everything goes it's a we will not uh, prosecute for possession and you know there's ne- there's never been a case where there's like absolutely no restrictions on public consumption of alcohol for example or at least not in the past century and 
it's not a surprise that uh, as we're proceeding with this, there is some playing around with where the boundaries are when it comes to uh, other substances as well. The province's argument is that police in downtowns will have discretion and may just choose not to enforce the law. But I think a discussion and listening to drug user advocates and, you know, a look at the history of how that's gone is not uh, encouraging for me, at least, to think that this is going to improve the situation. I mean, this move is being condemned by the BC coroner and uh, drug user advocates and a number of other groups who, you know, note that this is basically just pushing people back into the alleys. Like, it's one thing if you have a house or a home where you can use the drugs at, you know, no, I'm not going to say safely, but if you have other people there, it can be safe. But if you don't have those, which many people don't, and they're just on the streets, this has now pushed them back into the alleys if there's no supervised consumption sites in their area. So it's it's a bit of a swing too far in the other direction, I think. Like, I get yeah, the idea I'm that there is, to. like, a line and, you know, the fine, the playgrounds and parks thing. I could see that, but just, like, shutting down drug use in the downtown east side seems like it's not going to work. Well, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Anyone who's been downtown Vancouver in the past several years has probably encountered a person or two who is using drugs passed out in uh, the entranceway to a building or something. It's not an uncommon sight. So there's something that is actually being responded to here and we, but prohibition you know, doesn't isn't work. A zero. <laughs> we need other answers besides trying to go back to the thing we saw it didn't work. But at the same time, it's not like drug use is a zero externality uh, activity, and some degree of regulation around that is pretty normal and kind of what you would expect from any government. Well, they made the argument that this is like we ban smoking from the front of entrances. But there's a fundamental difference in that if I walk by someone smoking, I have an increased risk of lung cancer. I think it's re actually relatively trivial in outdoor spaces, but that's the argument. If I walk by someone injecting heroin or, you know, doing crack out of a pipe, it makes me uncomfortable, but that's not an externality. That's just me, right? That's not like, oh, there is a social cost of this. That's people moralizing drugs. That's stigma. That's the problem. And as for alcohol, we should probably be a lot more loose on that too. There's there's room for adjustment for sure, but yeah. Intoxication definitely has negative externalities for sure. And maybe this would have been better if it was structured around a you no know, public intoxication uh structure, but I said, it's a pilot project. This is the sort of thing you try and hammer out uh, throughout it to, to see what works and doesn't. I would love to see more data. I mentioned that dashboard they're starting to work on, but it's so soon. Let's jump to the fireworks that are happening in the legislature. Uh, John Rustad and the BC Conservatives got their first questions in question period. The agreement, I guess, worked out that Every day, the BC Greens and BC Conservatives are going to get one question and the BC Liberals take the other, I think it's four, I want to say, if that. But uh, basically, they are not getting their proportionate share of questions. And instead, we get Rustad going off about sexualized images in elementary schools and every other conspiracy he's hearing from uh, the protests that he did not officially endorse. Well, if you're going to uh, have a proportional uh, question period, you'd probably have to actually dramatically increase the number of questions being asked, or otherwise you're just like cutting out anyone that's not the official opposition. You, you don't Which have to get equal questions every day. Like Greens could get a question a week, and but there's ways you could do it within the – but then again – Alternatively, I, I, we could have more question period, but I'm not sure the government would like that. Yeah, the, this legislature is not structured for – uh, opposition strength. Same thing. So yeah, uh, to John Rustad's question where he, you know, rambled on about uh, Soji and how he would repeal it. He asked, I think the education minister, if he would agree in condemning it as too divisive and 
you know, parents are upset, to which David Eby as premier steps in and answers it, which is a rare chance for him to stand up and bombast. I've seen, I'm, I guess I'm used to like people asking the premier or prime minister questions and then someone else stepping in. Uh, but Eby took this one, took a very strong stance, said, you know, I reject your question entirely. I don't want to deal with this. Uh, but it made for a good show, which meant no one paid attention to anyone else in that house that day. Yeah, that's actually what I find far more interesting. Uh, it's, you know, not uh, what was it until very recently, an extremely fringe party uh, asked some questions that uh, were uninspected for a party of that kind. It's the fact that uh, this is kind of emerging, or at least we have hints of it as the dynamic that's going to be playing out. And I'm sure the NDP are happy about that. Does anything that uh, shines a light on the party to the right flank of the BC United is only good for them because it will only split the uh, opposition vote further. And based on what we've seen so far, I, I think they're going to try and keep that up and try and make the fight Rustad versus EB rather than Falcon versus EB. Yeah, and that works for both of those two men. We saw, I think it was a Leger poll today that put... Uh, Rustad in second. Rust, yeah, the Conservative Party at 25% over the United at 19%, which I think is just outside their margin of error. The Greens down to 10 and the NDP at 42. Um, 3% voting for another party. I think that adds up to like 102%, but there's rounding. Uh, so... You know, good days for David Eby, long-term still to be determined. Kevin Falcon and the BC United are just drinking Cope right now. and <laughs> They are f floundering. And just trying to grab it. Like I said, Cope, anything that'll uh, help convince them that they're not in uh, the serious trouble they actually are in. Uh, to that end, they proposed... Uh, an another policy this week, I like following these just to see what the official opposition's alternate view of the government is. And they flagged, as many have noticed, that Metro Vancouver is planning to uh, triple development fees essentially onto uh, new developments in the region to cover a bunch of the shortfalls they've been having in building up the infrastructure to, you know, cover new water treatment plants and things like that. And in a housing crisis, that is a makes it a challenge to deliver affordable housing. And so Kevin Falcon has said he would stop that additional fee. So like, he's not wrong on this. Yeah, those fees are a problem. They do get passed on to, uh, the end user of the housing, whether that's the uh, renter or the purchaser of a home, and in a small way does contribute to the unaffordability of housing. And like we saw with Sean Fraser, there's ample reason to uh, criticize that, roll that back. And, you know, Metro Vancouver's pitching this as a, well, we need this to cover our costs, and it's not fair to put it on uh, taxpayers. Growth should pay for growth, which is bullshit like it ideally the cost of the infrastructure to service a home should be paid for by the pr property taxes over the life of that home there's no reason to put that all on new residents other than the fact that they're not voting right now because they're future residents rather than current ones the where do you actually make up the shortfall part of his is a little less clear there they had some stuff about uh they need to uh do a better job of managing their own fiscal house and whatnot which yeah, not entirely unreasonable like the north shore wastewater treatment plant is massively over budget it's being a whole boondoggle and that's bad unfortunately uh be less crappy at project management isn't exactly a solution that can just be easily rolled out or solves the incurred costs already. 
But more importantly, or at least more politically relevant than all of this, because <laughs> they're not going to be anywhere near power anytime soon, is that uh, we were talking about this a week ago. The, uh, the fee announcement came out, I think, a week and a half ago. Sean Fraser did, uh, came in a few days after that. We ended up talking about it on last week's podcast, and... Now this week, BC United is finally getting around to it. They uh, dropped this on Tuesday. And like we talked about with the wildfire announcement, they just keep seeming to be very slow responding to the actual situation. And their their hatching decision loop is just crazy slow. And it's something that hints that probably more problems behind the scenes than we're seeing if they're not able to respond quickly and effectively when something is in the news cycle as opposed to a week or two after the news cycle when everyone else has moved on. Yeah, this reeks of like how the Green Party would sometimes respond to things rather than like the official opposition that has resources to pay people to follow issues and develop quick responses. Like I'll give them credit that they've responded faster than the government who as far as I know has not said anything about these fees and has less left it as a municipal I regional think, issue i think the housing minister may have had some vague we don't like this statement but maybe if he was asked but i don't think they proactively have done anything uh yeah i think it was a press conference question or something so yeah it's a mess the the fees are bad like my property taxes are pretty low i could eat a bit more if it gets water to my house which i need especially because like for the all those new wastewater treatment plants uh so like north shores i'm actually not sure if it's underway at the moment they've been hit with various stop work orders the uh, engineer record left the project uh which was part of the reason they got hit with a stop work order um Anasis island did a big upgrade a couple years back um there's iona in the works uh, but more to the point, all of those are being used by the existing residents, and the existing residents should uh, kick in a bit to uh, cover those. Or go creative, BC United, if you don't want to be the party that gets blamed for property tax increases and suggest alternative fundraising mechanisms for municipalities and regional governments like, I don't know, sales tax surcharges that don't have to go through referendum or... I don't know, a local income tax. Uh, there's lots of different tools out there. We already have a gas tax surcharge. Well, there's also the, uh, was it, there's a hotel tax that gets oh, yeah. uh, collected by municipalities as well, or at least a portion of it does. It's not like the province has never handed out any taxation power beyond uh, property taxes. They just don't want to. Indeed. In terms of ideas for housing, Ravi Kalon, the housing minister, has outlined some of the things we can expect to see in this fall sitting of the legislature. None of this is really that new, but it's just confirming that these bills are coming forward. Uh, new rules around short-term rentals and Airbnb type stuff. The grants for property owners to put secondary suites is going to be enshrined in legislation this fall. The, as this zoning changes that will allow them to build secondary suites across the province. And yeah, and that upzoning tool. And there's a kit. vague, more multi-unit housing for middle-income earners, which is I that think zoning that, changing? Yeah, I think that's it's the It's hard up-zoning. to say uh, on that. But. I mean, if they're already breaking the taboo of uh, having the province just directly come in and zone things... They should go more than secondary suites. Well, they had been they're... talking about four, four by right. So it's all a good start. We'll have to judge it when we see it because it's nice to preview it, but it's better to have the laws in front of us. And they've been previewing for a while. Like at this point, just get the legislation passed already. We're, at now, I think over a year since some of this stuff started getting teased and whatnot, it's time well, to actually do well, it because there's a David, long... David Eby just mentioned some of it during his leadership quote-unquote race. He couldn't pass it when he wasn't premier. 
because John well, Morgan was... was opposed to this, I guess. I don't know. But we still got, like, the Housing Supply Act in the fall sitting after EB uh, became premier uh, last year. And, you know, they, they could have done uh, secondary suites by, uh, by right at the same time. Like, or done it in the spring session. Like, no reason to slow this stuff down. And uh, might as well just do it because it takes a long time for any of this stuff to... Uh, show up like yeah it's great the province is finally moving on some of this stuff it's good uh that uh at least one liberal cabinet minister seems to have discovered that they actually have a pulse and is starting to do some stuff but uh this is like multi-year things before they even start showing up to a difference it's not gonna happen in time enough to save the uh, liberal government because none of the price changes are going to show up before the next election. The PCNDP, as we mentioned, are in a better position with their uh, support and are not likely to lose the, the next election on affordability, but you know, long timelines, it's going to come home to roost eventually, so just do it. Also, it's the right thing. The other thing they're going to need to do more to deal with, it seems like, is the chaos that is BC Ferries, which is wildly understaffed. They announced investments in affordability. Yeah, Uh, we'll come back to that in a sec. And they did a big release this week of investments in affordability, $500 million to keep uh, fare increases to inflation. And tied with that, they have renewed the contract with the company that actually runs the ferries it's a weird like quasi crown corp arms length crown corporation situation which seems like they're the sole shareholder yeah so it's a crown corp they're like the governance is a little weirder than a lot of them yeah and they did appoint like joy mcphail to the board but it still runs like more independently anyway the contract's been renewed and they have now as part of that said there are fines if boats don't run it'll be seven thousand dollars to bc ferries for the major routes and a thousand on the minor routes and a number of the minor routes thankfully have been deemed essential so that they will be harder to cancel at least although not every route is essential so yeah i've not actually had a chance to look through that list yet be curious to see which ones are getting upgraded um but more seriously like they are the sole shareholder they're putting a bunch of money in but also going to be putting in fines if they miss that like i am just confused on the logic on this one there is no person that takes the hit for the fine there's no shareholder that isn't them to that will you know, hold the company and its board to account like just what is the point of finding a company that you own a hundred percent of and that you are now plowing money into like is the point to just juice the GDP numbers? Like, why? It's money laundering, Scott. We didn't actually ever solve the problem. This is just the new way to do it. It's cool when the government does it. I haven't seen any specifics on how the fines operate besides just a ferry doesn't run, they face this fee. Like, maybe they could tie it to exec bonuses or something like that. Uh, we joked about the number of execs and I was trying to figure out something before we started uh, recording. And I found a story from January of this year that the company has more senior managers than vessels in its fleet, 51 shore base executive directors and directors versus 39 boats. They have over 200 other managers and superintendents. So there's just like, if it feels top heavy, which is not good for a a ship no you want the center of gravity to be low on those things so does the union uh yeah they uh, just before you hit record and now announced that reorganizing their uh executives and creating different new divisions and we've not had a chance to look at this yet but uh it's yeah a case of rearranging the the vps but like not clear that it's going to uh lead to better service because what I can tell, that's largely a function of the ships being stuck in maintenance and uh, not having enough people. 
to actually run the sailings. It would be horribly ironic if fairies took down another BCNDP government. And in this, it would be hilarious. You mean? Well, like hilariously ironic, yeah. This time it was the uh, slow fairies that would uh, get them in trouble. Yeah, the the ones in dry dock. Let's go to the federal government in Ottawa. As I mentioned off the top, we have a new speaker. They had the election whereby everyone pulls their names out of the hat and those who didn't are on the ballot. Elizabeth May really wanted the job, as did one conservative, one new Democrat, and a whole bunch of liberals. At the end of the day, Greg Fergus, the liberal from Quebec, and the first black Canadian to ever be speaker was elected by his peers. So congrats, Mr. Fergus. Real hilarious that was just how elections worked in general. Like everybody had to deregister so they wouldn't be on the ballot. Um, but yeah, new speaker uh, kind of comes at the moment where there's uh, yeah, a bit of tarnish on that job and hopefully the, uh, the new speaker uh, can do that. Although... Interestingly, uh, this might also be the first speaker to have a ethics violation on their record when they're coming in. I have not had a chance to uh, dig through it all, but he was uh, dinged, I think, early this year by the ethics commissioner for uh, inappropriately lobbying, uh, I think it was CRTC, uh, in his role as a uh, parliamentary secretary, which MPs are allowed to uh, do that, but... uh, Parliamentary secretaries and ministers aren't. Oh, he wrote a letter. He got in trouble for writing a letter. But a huge ethics violation, but still. One. Yeah. Yeah, a slap on the wrist kind of thing. Uh, Yeah. It'll be a challenging role to take up, but uh, congrats to yeah Greg Fergus. One of the other follow-ups in ongoing federal parliament news is I mentioned that one of the things the federal government has been called on to do is release the secret half of the Deschen Commission's 1986 why are there so many Nazis in Canada report which I, I how did I not I didn't know that this res- commission existed until like last week and I still can't get over the fact we had to have that well to to be fair like both of us were either not born or uh, yeah, very, that's very fair. I mean, when that happened. I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge of all commissions that this go- that a Canadian government has ever called, and I don't think anyone really would. Yeah, the news this week is that Trudeau is, quote, looking carefully at releasing the secret half of the report, which includes a list of names of people s- suspected of being uh, members of the SS in the past. So that would be interesting if that comes out because we have seen a couple like follow-up stories. The Governor General rescinded posthumously the Order of Canada from Peter Savarin, I believe was his name. He was a member of the SS and also former Chancellor of the University of Alberta. Um, The University of Alberta rescinded or gave back $30,000 to the Hunka family that they had donated because they went, maybe we don't want money with a Nazi's name on it in our campus. Uh, progress, The Progress Report out of Alberta then went through all of the foundations that have put money into the University of Alberta's endowment, and they've found at least $1.4 million worth of Nazi gold in the U of A's various holdings. So we'll see. And some of, like, there's one or two names on there who are not just like, Hunka's like just a grunt who joined a unit. There's like the guy who founded the 14th SS in there. Charming. Yeah. Um, some real some real pieces of shit. Um, so we'll see what the U of A does with that. Uh, the U of A is getting specially targeted because they have a very large uh, Ukrainian Studies Institute. I don't know if any other institutions are going to be as affected as my alma mater. Um, but yeah, still ripples coming out from that controversy, just like there's ripples coming out of our... Um, accusing India of murder controversy. Yeah, so uh, well, we were all busy uh, focusing on the speaker and his giant screw-up. 
India never really uh, took its foot off the gas, the whole uh, dispute. Uh, and this case, they're uh, sending 41 of the 62 Canadian diplomats in the country home. Yeah, this is the second tit-for-tat response, it seems like. India had already done an initial round of expelling a couple diplomats and I think closing visa offices, right? Well, yeah. So, yeah. So, we expelled a diplomat who uh, we believed was uh, an intelligence agent with a diplomatic cover. Uh, India, in return, spelled a couple of R's. Very standard stuff. Um, I kind of figured it would end there. And no, India's uh, carried on and spelled a whole bunch more. In addition to, yeah, closing some visa offices and whatnot. Trudeau is not, doesn't seem super keen on carrying this on. He's, his uh, statement uh, on this one was basically, we're taking this extremely seriously, but we are going to continue to engage responsibly and constructively with the Indian government. So, uh, sounds like there may not be another tit after this attack. Yeah, I don't know that there's a strong rec- you know, foreign policy playbook for how to manage this. I don't think we have any desire to escalate this much further. I don't, like, they're not going to admit they did it and us continuing to yell about it doesn't do much more i think the best thing we can do is just focus on beefing up our own internal processes such that it doesn't happen again like yeah yeah so um i'm not sure if there's an assassination playbook so to speak but uh it's pretty typical when a country gets caught doing various clandestine operations on another country's soil. It's a big embarrassment. Diplomats get sent home. They may, uh, as a result, send a couple of the other country's diplomats home. That's generally where it gets left. Uh, Kind of the reason why I thought it wouldn't have even gone to this point where they're sending most of the diplomatic staff home um, on there. But yeah, like you said, it's uh, not something that's like clearly in our foreign policy interest to continue and right, on this and yeah, it's as terrible as it is to have someone assassinate uh, a Canadian on our own soil, it's not the sort of thing that's worth uh, in kind of an abstract uh, geopolitical interest uh aspect uh blowing up a uh bilateral relationship with one of the uh largest countries on the planet and who does have a uh a lot of importance to our allies in terms of uh being a regional counterweight to china so yeah it's the sort of thing where like the like i said at the time like the world's a nasty place we kind of got to accept that and take a, uh, I don't want to use the term realist because that uh, has gotten pretty distorted in a lot of uh, international relations discussions to mean not what I'm trying to get at here, but like a more kind of hard-eyed look at uh, how the world is and how it actually operates. And yeah, that means beefing up stuff at home. That means investing in our own security apparatus. That means more resources and more effective CSIS. That means investing in our other security and policing apparatuses that are, you know, the people that should have caught on to this and intervened before. And yeah, that means a more effective and better resourced uh, CSIS and RCMP. Or ones that listen to communities that say they have been under threat from foreign governments uh, Which falls under the more effective. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the other things that helps deal and helps Canadians understand our place in the world is the media. That's my segue to the CRTC has set out uh, its next round of policies and regulations around Bill C-11, that is modernizing Canada's broadcasting framework. We have 
three things coming up. We now have a set of a registration form to collect some basic information on broadcasting online streaming services, which includes podcasting services, which is like one company of CBC maybe, that earn over $10 million in annual revenue. Uh, they'll need to register by November 28th, 2023 by providing like a contact name, business phone number, and just like, hey, what what do you do? Just out of curiosity. Basically the kind of stuff they've already provided on like the cover sheet to the CRA. Uh, next, the CRTC is working on some conditions for online streaming services. Um, and finally, there's an ongoing consultation on online streaming services that will go in three weeks on November 20th. So the big thing here is this like registration form has opened and you can either, you know, reasonably hate it or it's like roll your eyes at it, I think. Yeah, it's created a fair bit of controversy um, on it. On Yeah, on one hand, it's a registration form, but like it's also very clearly step one in a larger regulatory scheme that we don't have a lot of insight into at the moment. And kind of, it's not necessarily the registration that has people concerned. It's, okay, and then what uh, about it? Because... It's not just podcast producers, it's also going to be distribution networks and whatnot. So, you know, it's going to be Apple and Spotify and all of those various ones. Like, you know, if your podcast app uh, generates more than $10 million in Canadian revenue, they'll be uh, having to register and whatnot. And yeah, it's not the podcasters directly, but, uh, you know, it's the distribution channels they depend on. And, that has a lot of podcasters reasonably worried about kind of what the next step is. And particularly because during the debate around uh, C11, they never mentioned they were looking at bringing podcasting under this purview. It is far from clear why podcasts would even need to be regulated. Like there is no appreciable market failure here the barrier to entry is it's seed no sorry the the market failure is that the joe rogan show is the number one podcast in canada it's just like throw it all out podcasts are crap because of that and i think you just confirmed a lot of people's fears that this is going to be a uh, eventually a content regulation scheme um but yeah as i was saying like I, we recorded our first wasn't episode one. I think we called it episode zero. It was recorded on a phone. It's yeah, like oh, cheap to host this stuff. Like barriers to entry are extremely low. There is abundance in the market. There is more more options than anyone could possibly listen to. Like there, there's like no failure that needs to be addressed here uh, on this. So. Why is the government feeling the need to step in on this? It's, you know, bringing this under the Broadcast Act, which came about when there was a real scarcity that needed to be addressed. That was the electromagnetic spectrum, which radio and TV were broadcast over. And yeah, there needed to be a role for a uh, commission to manage that, deal with that. But uh the internet is fundamentally different and trying to shoehorn it into a model that uh, is based off of very different assumptions just does not seem to be a wise or practical way to go about this or even fundamentally understands what is trying to be regulated. One of the things that's good I see in here is one of the conditions for online streaming services is that they must make their content available in a way that is not tied to a specific mobile or internet service. And that's like a fundamental net neutrality type argument of like, hey, you can't say that you get Spotify bonus plus, but only if you subscribe to Bell. Well, actually, it'd be like Crave. You can only use Crave on Bell um, and that kind of stuff. So like, that's a reasonable kind of realm I can see for these types of rules to come in 
like the top level goal here that they're talking about is ensuring online streaming services make meaningful contributions to Canadian and Indigenous content. The idea of what they could do through a tax and funding program, but they're trying to do it in the most liberal way possible of having a scheme of like overlapping and confusing regulatory structures and uh, bodies like the CRTC. I mean, is there a lack of Canadian uh, podcasts out there? I know, like my my well, but app is like a mix. The meaningful contributions can be more than just make sure that they exist, but make sure that there is funding to make good ones that aren't just from CBC. I mean, like even so, there's plenty of uh, good podcasts out there that are not from CBC that are Canadian. It's far from clear there's actually a problem that needs to be solved here and the whole thing feels very like vibes based that we we don't like that it isn't regulated we're going to regulate it regardless of whether or not regulation is needed and considering that the last time they tried to help a media industry they basically blew up its uh revenue model I am not confident they are going to be able to do this in a way that isn't going to hurt rather than help uh, an industry that is actually doing just fine. Well, this step is largely a nothing burger, but I guess we'll see in a few months after the next round of consultations have finished and the next set of CRTC decisions comes through where this all goes in the end. The other thing the government got up to that we talked about a few weeks ago is they got all those grocery CEOs into a room and gave them a good, uh, you know, talking to about it being too expensive to go get milk and bread and other basic food items and said, come up with a plan to fix it. And we got we got the plan, Scott. You know what it is? Uh, a sale. <laughs> and, and, and price fees, freezes that they've all agreed to that seemingly happen and every year at the end of the year anyway. Yeah, so um for record I was like digging trying to find out uh, pull up what the uh like most recent inflation numbers for uh grocery were and I came across a, like a report from Dalhousie and UBC and a few others and buried in there was a mention that uh Loblaws had done a price freeze at the end of uh 2022. And like I don't know if you've done that that was the big one they tried to brag about. I remember that one. I'd completely forgotten about that, which kind of goes to the point. Like, it did not arrest the uh, price changes very much at all. Um, it hadn't been accounted for in the numbers in this report, but in 2022, price, uh, food overall had climbed by 10.3%, and like a small price freeze at the end of the year hadn't really stopped that hasn't made a noticeable difference in terms of 2023's prices at all. So yeah, like David agreed they're going to drop prices on some stuff, but you know, that's probably going to be a sale for a couple weeks on a few things. They're going to splash in their flyers, make a make a big deal about it and then you know, it's going to go back to the same old uh, supply and demand dynamics that have been driving all of this before. And we'll continue to drive it. And, you know, the government gets to do a big flashy, see what a difference we made thing that's ultimately going to be inconsequential because really this is driven by commodity prices, uh, a major war in one of the uh, big bread baskets of the world, like a whole bunch of little things that uh, are out of the control of a few grocery CEOs. It wasn't, thankfully, just the one announcement they made. They kind of teased other things they're working on. Uh, they mentioned basically establishing a grocery task force with the Office of Consumer Affairs that will investigate harmful practices to consumers. And he mentioned shrinkflation, uh, the idea that, hey, you still spend $10 for a box of cereal, but it's now actually 10% less cereal. Which, like... Uh, they are... Yeah, on It's a real thing, like, and sucks. Yeah, but, like, that's the way a lot of inflation shows up. Uh, retailers figured out long ago that uh, consumers don't actually like it when prices increase. Uh, 
The problem is the prices they are paying their wholesalers for stuff, uh, that actually is out of their control and does end up uh, climbing with inflation. So the way that that has generally tried to be balanced off is, well, our input costs are going up, but we don't want to raise our sticker price. So we are going to change the quantity that that amount buys because uh, people are not necessarily great calculators of this sort of thing. And it gets less pushback, but the inflation numbers that uh, stats can reports in their CPI, like they know this is a thing that gets tracked. Like it's the, the inflation numbers do account for it. So ultimately, if like you put in a rule that stops your inflation, the slack is going to get taken up by having the sticker price change rather than the quantity change. And it's sure. But it does mean when I go to the grocery store and I need a box of craft dinner, I don't need to buy two right now, which actually does cost me twice as much on that grocery trip, even if I don't have to buy it as frequently, right? It it pisses me off less at the individual time. Um, the government is proposing a couple other things they're doing. They're still working on a code of conduct for fairness and transparency in the sector. They're going to launch a data hub for better information in the food prices in Canada. This is based on the US food dollar survey that I guess exists. I mean, I'm always in favor of more, you know, data and numbers. And finally, they're fi uh, pushing forward their Competition Act moderate modernization bill C-56. And they, they said everyone in Parliament needs to uh, support that bill, which like it's fine. There's probably more, as we talked about, that can be done around yeah, like Competition Act. Because we have well established we don't have a healthy competition in grocery yeah, there are stores things in this to, country. Uh, address in there. The fact they're all still making profits tells us oh, they're fleecing like, us. If it was a healthy competition, if it was healthy competition, their profits would be going down as they tried to outcompete one another instead of getting in actual scandals of fixing I mean, the price of bread. Making profit is normal and entirely reasonable and yeah they have price their profits have gone up a little bit uh so have their input costs and everything and you know at the end of the day their profits over a period of what three four years from uh 2019 from 2019 to uh 2022 went from about two and a half billion to three and a half billion on a total revenue that exceeded a hundred billion. Like it's a hundred billion per year. We're talking three percent uh profit, three and a half percent profit margins overall. Uh prices went up ten percent. Like you there is not like it's not the primary driver of any of this um on there. It's not even a particularly high profit margin. Like this is not the sort of uh projected profits that if you were to take to an investor and go, hey, I can return you, or I can get you a 3% uh, profit margin on this that they are going to be, you know, happy and wanting to invest in. Like, it's not a particularly profitable industry. And you ultimately, even if you were to roll it back to zero, which has a bunch of negative consequences, like such as drying up investment in the sector, uh, which would ultimately harm rather than help competition uh, on there, you still don't get even half of one year's inflation to go away. Like It's not where the problem fundamentally lies here. And there's, there's things to improve for sure in the competition. Like the uh, weird thing with using leasing power to like, nudge out co competitors and uh, prevent like dollar stores and in malls they are also leasing from selling brands. So, like, yeah, there, there's some problems there. It could be cleaned up a bit. It's not going to be the thing that uh, makes groceries affordable or even undoes one year's worth of inflation. So competition is not the answer. It's fun. What's actually funny at the end of the CTV article is it notes that the Bill C-56, this Competition Act reform, is on its fifth day of debate at second reading. 
as the, I guess the conservatives are actually holding it up possibly, or at least according to Freeland, she's blaming him for procedural delays, um, which I get there's a bit of grandstanding you can do around this issue on grocery prices because it's front of mind for Canadians. But yeah, it does make me wonder what the conservative solution and support for people who are mad actually is. Like, I'll give credit to the Liberals for at least, like, recognizing this is something people are upset about and trying to present something. Um, it's not a solid answer. No one feels happy because they're, like, there aren't a lot of easy yeah, answers here for some of the reasons you outlined. But it's one thing to at least, you know, say um, it's an issue and try and do something. It's another to be like, Turkey's too expensive. What are you doing about it? I also don't want you to be doing this thing about it. Grow the f- <laughs> grow up here. Yeah, but the one thing I've seen them highlight is energy costs, which are a natural factor in this. Um, but, like, same thing. That that only gets you a little bit there, and it's, yeah, there's trade-offs with other policy goals in it, too. And, yeah, it, it's a complicated issue, but uh, like, ultimately the problem is food prices worldwide are high due to a bunch of factors and there is really nothing that a small country of 40 million can do even if it is a by far a net exporter of food and produces more than uh, we consume in canada some problems are just tough and that has been play toast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.